0: Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout.
0: He so routinely exaggerates and lies and obfuscates that there's no way he could have set for an interview without committing perjury. And I truly believe that's why they didn't send him the subpoena. I almost feel like this report searches for exoneration and wishes it could find it. And mm. and didn't, and did its best in in light of not being able to find exoneration. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
1: so proud of everyone's patience. The day has come, and we, Sarah and Beth on Pantsuit Politics, are going to discuss the Mueller Report. Before we dive into the Mueller Report in the main segment of the show, we'll be talking about news from across the globe. And then to close out, we'll be discussing what's on our mind outside politics.
0: We also want to remind you that we would love to see you at Florence Christian Church on April 27th It's coming right up this Saturday. The link for tickets is in our show notes, but Sarah and I will be talking about our book. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. A guide to grace-filled political conversation, and we'll also be sharing in a workshop about the unique role that churches can play in leading grace-filled political conversation. It would warm my heart to see you there at my home church, and I hope you will check it out.
1: And as always, we would love it if you have enjoyed our book, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, if you could pop on over to Amazon and give it a review. Reviews help new people find the book, just like reviews on iTunes help new people find the podcast. And so any support is much appreciated.
0: Easter Sunday was a difficult one this year for a number of reasons. We should start off by just saying how much we are holding Rachel Held Evans Mm -hmm. and her family in our hearts and in our prayers. For those of you who don't know, Rachel was a guest on our podcast to talk about her book Inspired. She is a good friend. She and Sarah Bessie and Jeff Chu put together the Evolving Faith Conference where we'll be speaking this fall. And Rachel is in a medically induced coma right now after suffering seizures in response to a medication I believe that she was taking for an infection. And so we are just torn up about that. And really hopeful for a a good outcome soon for her and her family. Also, Easter Sunday was difficult because in Sri Lanka, 290 people were killed and more than 500 were injured in a series of bombings at three churches and hotels. The government of Sri Lanka has sent a
1: couple mixed messages. The defense minister says that it was religious extremists. The health minister says that it was unrelated domestic Basically, gangs. So, it's really still in the process of gathering information and developing this story. We don't have a complete picture on who organized this attack and their connection to any global terror networks.
0: And no group has claimed responsibility yet. Christians are a religious minority in Sri Lanka. And these attacks took place, obviously, on Easter Sunday in Catholic and Protestant services. It's Just a devastating time for that country. It's 10 years out from the end of a civil war. I talked more about this on the Nightly Nuance on Patreon, but the history of that country makes this particularly hard. And we're just hoping for more information and for peace and calm and holding the grief of Sri Lankans in our hearts as well.
1: In France, the Yellow Vest protest turned violent again this weekend. This is 23 straight weekends of active protest in France since November. It started with a fuel tax increase, but has become a more generalized protest against income inequality and economic struggles in France. It was really interesting. I think this is such a different response than we would see in America because Basically the French people got very upset that they raised like a billion dollars for the rebuilding of Notre Dame so quickly while everyone else in the in the country struggles this just fueled the fire against Macron and a government that they see as propping up the wealthy. I think in America sort of you know fundraising for a cause like that is as seen as purely positive positive. and I'm not going to lie kind of dig the viva la revolution spirit of the french that are like hold up this seems problematic that these people can throw out a billion dollars without an issue and we can't pay our bills or pay for fuel so there was police fire tear gas water cannons to break up the crowd but i don't see these yellow vest protests ending anytime soon do you
0: I don't think so. And I will say, I think that spirit is spreading because American Twitter mm-hmm. was ablaze with criticism of people donating to Notre Dame. And we're going to talk in a second about the church fires in Louisiana, mm-hmm. but a lot of money was raised for those fires as a result of people pointing out like, hey, there's plenty of money available for Notre Dame. There are issues in this country too that you need to turn your attention to. The Native Twitter had a lot of discussion about Our sacred spaces have been burned and destroyed Mm -hmm. for a long time. And sacred is sacred. Notre Dame is sacred. Our spaces are sacred, too. So I do think the conversation is getting more complex. I wish it could be held as just more complex instead of so quickly becoming adversarial. But, you know, that's just my nature.
1: We talked about this when the fundraising first went up for Notre Dame. I had an incredible emotional reaction in Notre Dame was very upset about it. Never once had the instinct to donate money because my immediate reaction was, they don't need our money. There is plenty of wealth in France. They will pay for this without a problem, which turned out to be true. And again, the reaction was linking some of these fires. For those of you who don't know, on March 26, a fire was set at St. Mary Baptist Church in Port Bear, Louisiana. And on April 2nd, arson was committed at the Greater Union Baptist Church and Opalosis. and then on April 4th, Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. So these were historically black places of worship. And luckily and positively, there was a huge amount of fundraising on behalf of these churches. And I think they've all more than met their fundraising goals. But I think that reaction was appropriate. Like, why are we pouring in money into this place that the whole world supports that's going to have no problem fundraising? And these historically black churches We're not just the scene of accidents, but the scene of arson, and they really need our help.
0: Holden Matthews has been charged with hate crimes in connection with burning these churches with arson and with aggravated arson. The part of this story that really moved me is how the community came together around it, and pastors at nearby churches started doing things to try to defend their churches. They were sleeping in the Mm. churches. They were sleeping in church parking lots. I mean, it was just really... Touching reminder of what spaces like this mean to people and how acts of terrorism like this actually terrorize folks. You know, it puts you in that space of really worrying about your people and your place. And I'm glad that these stories received more attention. I hate that it took the fire at Notre Dame to put the spotlight on these churches that they deserved, but we're thinking of those communities as well.
1: The other development we wanted to discuss was the State Department has decided to end waivers for Iranian oil as of May 2nd. So if you import Iranian oil, you will be subject to sanctions from the United States. This is expected to cause a large amount of market disruption and mainly benefits Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So countries that are currently receiving waivers are they going to get sanctions if they don't cut off, they don't cut off all the supply of Iranian oil? And that's China, India, Turkey, Japan, and South Korea.
0: The State Department says that market disruption should be minimal because oil supply is greater than demand. I think that ignores the complex interplay of mm-hmm. the actual market and geopolitical tension, because this is all happening while we are trying to draw up an accord with China to turn the temperature down on our trade tensions. You have all of these companies that are nervous about investment between the U.S. and China because of the tariffs that have gone into place. Saudi Arabia is the center of lots of global... Side-eye, at least, right, because of Jamal Khashoggi's death, because of the war in Yemen. And for us to make a move that so clearly benefits Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. in the midst of everything else that we've done in the Middle East recently, I think is short-sighted, is a generous way to describe it. So I don't know what the administration's end game is with Iran. You know, it seems like Pompeo and Bolton— to different degrees. I don't think Pompeo is as committed to this as Bolton, but it's it seems like Bolton just wants a war with Iran. Is that too strong? Mm-hmm. No. I think that sounds accurate to me. And and why? What is the what is the end game there? I just don't understand.
1: This is not nuanced because he's a little bit crazy. I think he just as an individual has a very particular extreme global view of the world.
0: Even in an ex- extreme view of the world, though, I just – I don't understand how you look at history and think the best thing for our country is another armed conflict with mm-hmm. a power in the Middle East. We we know from experience that we end up staying for years and years. I don't think there is a version of the future that looks like an Iran that's a great friend of the United States and – I don't know. It just troubles me that we seem to keep repeating the mistakes of the past and and freezing out Iran economically. I'm I'm just not sure what we're trying to gain from that.
1: What makes me sad about the seemingly naked motivation of promoting Saudi Arabia's interest is I'm reading – and I keep talking about it because it's 500 pages long, so I've been reading it for a while, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Abram X. Kendi. And one of the really interesting points he makes is that part of the reason that you saw such dramatic movement on civil rights in the 1960s is because America, in fighting the Cold War with the Soviet Union, was promoting itself as the global leader on freedom and liberty. And the hypocrisy of the Jim Crow South was being exploited by Russia in this sort of Cold War foreign policy debate. And so it was presenting ourselves as a certain type of moral leader in the free world helped our citizens because it was it was a motivation. It was an accelerant for changes in our country. So we didn't look like hypocrites. And it's like the fact that now – the the trump administration has seemingly totally abandoned the idea that we should be any sort of moral leader that we should be some any sort of ethical force or democratic force in the on the globe is it just it removes that that extra motivation that extra energy around civil rights around treating all of the members of our own country fairly and it just when we every time we do something like remove these in these waivers Just try to benefit a country like Saudi Arabia who who suffers no consequences for being – for mistreating their own people, for murdering journalists. It just – oh, it just makes – it feel so hopeless. You know, it just feels so sad and the only – hope I take from it is that Americans do seemingly respond to the idea that we are not looked at kindly around the world. If you Even if you look at elections, like that's a very motivating thing for people is if we're a joke around the world, if people don't look at us as a moral leader around the world. So I just, I mean, I hope every action like this sort of builds the case that do we want to abandon, Does do we want America to abandon its leadership in the world? If so, that's what we're doing. If not, then we need to talk about a change of administration.
0: I don't know that there is no interest in being a moral leader within the Trump administration. I certainly don't think that's Donald Trump's motivation. I think someone like Pompeo probably has a little bit of the George W. Bush administration mindset where he does think of this as moral leadership. I could make an argument for ending these waivers to say, look, look. It's not fair that we would sanction countries that are smaller and less economically powerful than China, Japan, South Korea, and then not put those sanctions on those countries, right? If we're going to have these sanctions in place, they should apply to all countries, regardless of whether they're good trade partners to us or not. And so I understand that rationale. What I really don't know what to do about is the constant march toward isolating Iran, And believing that some good will come of that, because I think that's ahistorical. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about the Mueller report, our much anticipated conversation, and I agree with you, Sarah, I'm so proud of everyone's patience around that. Let's compliment the other side. I will go first because yours, I think, is a good segue. I was so moved by a story from the Star Tribune in Minnesota about a group of women who are just organizing and doing like grassroots work to make climate change a priority at the state level. Teresa Hasbrook is a Democrat from Rush City. She's 67 years old. She's retired. And she was very motivated by the 2016 election. And so she got some friends together. They started meeting at libraries and they identified climate change as their number one priority. So they have been writing postcards and knocking on doors, and they're making a real difference. Minnesota is very serious about climate change. The governor there, Tim Waltz, rolled out a proposal that would mandate Minnesota get 100 percent of its energy from renewable sources by 2050. And Teresa is quoted in this article as talking about how at this stage of her life, she feels a sense of urgency. She feels like she has the opportunity to make a difference, and she wants to do it. And I just thought it was a terrific story. We'll link it in the show notes.
1: So I'm going to compliment Senator Mitt Romney from Utah. I appreciated on the topic of moral leadership his desire to step forward and say whatever the political realities are, I am dismayed by the president's line, by the president's actions laid out in the Mueller report. There seems to be no other voice (laughs) in the Republican Senate caucus that's willing to step out and just take a moral stand Now, his political reality is much better than some others. He was just elected. Utah is a friendly state and not just friendly to conservatives, but I think because of the large Mormon population, friendly to this type of moral leadership. So good job, Mitt Romney. I appreciate you, buddy.
0: So next up, we are going to talk about the Mueller report, the press conference from the attorney general that preceded it and what we think happens next.
1: Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com help, slash pantsuit.
0: We had just gotten home from all of our travels and I flipped on cable news just to have on while I was cleaning up my kitchen. I was kind of trying to reorient myself to both my house and to the kind of thinking that I do about the news when we aren't on an airplane, you know, three quarters of every day. And I heard this announcement that the attorney general would be holding a press conference at 930 the next morning followed by like an 11 a.m. release of the Mueller report. And then shortly after that, I heard this evening, Jerry Nadler will be holding a press conference about the attorney general's decision to hold a press conference. And I thought, well, I'm back. Okay, I got it. Here we are. But for those of you who didn't watch the press conference, we should just say, The attorney general said, I think, six times that the conclusion of the report was that there was no collusion between the president, his family, his campaign and Russia, that he and Rod Rosenstein had some disagreement with the analysis around obstruction, but ultimately had to make a call that was their call to make that no obstruction occurred I thought that that statement, that sort of editorial, we disagreed with some of the analysis was really unfortunate because then he didn't say, here are the pieces of that analysis, right? It was just a generalized kind of casting aspersion on the work that had been done in the mm-hmm. report. He did say that here are the redactions and the four categories of redactions, which we'll talk about in a second. And then he took some questions and people, reporters just ask him, you seem like, the president's attorney right now, instead of the attorney general, why is that? And he refused to answer and and got really aggravated and ended after, I don't know, four questions or so.
1: I think this press conference was not only a bad idea and had a bad
0: impact for the Justice Department. I don't really think it was great for Trump either. Well, I think it diminished the credibility of the attorney general. Mm-hmm in a way that will have long-term consequences and short-term consequences because anyone who thought the release of the Mueller report would be a conclusion had that blown out of the water quickly by this press conference. It just opened the door to questions upon questions.
1: And instead of allowing the attorney general to testify and answer them, he basically said, well, I'm not a reliable source because I am very clearly and politically protecting the president. So you're going to need to call somebody else to testify if you want the, the, the straight dope on this report. Most likely Mueller. I mean, I don't know if anything he could have said or done would have prevented some members of Congress from calling for Mueller to, to testify. But I think he just increased their ranks with that press conference.
0: Yeah, I think if you had any sense of skepticism about fairness in this process, that was elevated tremendously and fairly by the way the attorney general handled this press conference. The only thing that I think would have been appropriate, like if I could lift a clip out to say, well, that was worth doing. It was his explanation of the process for redactions in the report, just to say there are four different categories of redactions. Here's how mm-hmm. we approach those. And then goodbye, everyone. Good, Enjoy your read. He didn't do that at all. It was a, it was almost a footnote. To the press conference, the press mm-hmm. conference was to reiterate the conclusions that he expressed in his initial letter, summarizing the report, and to repeat them emphatically. And apparently, to become annoyed at reporters who ask legitimate questions about his review of the report, I, I couldn't believe how testy he became in the press conference. He had to know where it was going. It, it, the whole yeah. thing felt like a show in that way to me.
1: I like it when people hold press conferences and then get mad when people when the press asks questions. <laughs> I feel like that is a thing people do semi regularly. And I just want to be like, what did you think? What do you think was going to happen when you invited them here to ask questions?
0: So it was either a play to a particular audience or indicative of someone who has been out of this game for such a long time that he's pretty out of touch with what's going to happen when you set it up this way.
1: Okay. So the Mueller Report was divided into two volumes. The first volume dealt primarily with. Russian interference in the 2016 election, the conclusion being that (laughs) there was definitely Russian interference in the 2016 election.
0: It's interesting to hear you summarize the conclusion that way, because I think that is the most fair conclusion. Mm -hmm. And it is not at all where the focus has been.
1: I know. It's all about, you know, whether there was collusion, that they didn't find any collusion. What is collusion? Here's what I left thinking about and what I've been been thinking about. And then I wanted to ask you. Now that you have read the Mueller report, particularly on this, on the interference in the 2016 election, do you think Donald Trump would have won the election if Russia had not interfered in our election?
0: I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know what the value is for me in speculating about it. What I walked away with is Donald Trump understood. That forces within Russia, forces within the Russian government, wanted him to win, actively took steps to try to help that result occur, that he celebrated and to some extent encouraged through his public comments that conduct, that his team was open to coordination The coordination just never materialized from the Russian side enough for it to become criminal activity and that they are cynically and have been for two years cynically trying to convince all of us that that's just what politics looks like.
1: When I see the conclusions and I see the list you just laid out, I don't understand why we don't talk about that this of course, (laughs) affected the outcome of the election, because I, I don't know why we've all decided, well, we can't know the hearts and minds of every single individual voter. So we just can't know for sure. Of course we can know for sure. Like, I just this is sort of my Enneagram one fairness nature that I just can't let it go that like we're all reading this knowing that it was very close in the states that helped him win the electoral college. And that there were voters acting on disinformation given to them through social media and other factors, that was untrue. And I just, it's like, I, it's like we can't see the forest through the trees. Like, it's not that I don't think the trees are important, but why don't we just say, like, they helped him win. He might not have won if they didn't do this, if... The campaign had alerted the authorities if different decisions were made. Like there's a lot of reporting about the fuming of Hillary land. And I can't blame them. If I'm Robbie Mook and I'm reading this, if I'm Jennifer Palmieri, I'm furious. I'm furious as just a Clinton voter that this is that this is the we know now we have all this information about what was happening during this incredibly important presidential campaign And we're all still just acting like he won fair and square. And it really bothers me, just like on a deeply emotional level.
0: I don't mean to insinuate that I think he won fair and square. One reason that I'm careful about this is because I think a lot of Americans truly don't understand the way our process works. I think there are people out there attacking Robert Mueller in this investigation and following the whole witch hunt drumbeat because they really don't understand that the decision making process does not go well he won because of this assistance so now hillary clinton is the president there are people who i think who really believe that this continues to be the binary choice of an election and that does not serve our democracy and i am trying to look at this report as a forward looking document people have fairly said Look, this is probably not the first time this has happened in our elections. It's just the first time that we have information about it, that we've caught them, right, that we've proven it. Good. That's good news. That's good news that we now we know. What are we going to do about it? And to me, the most damning conduct by the president in terms of volume one is that he has all of this information and he's had it for a long time. And rather than stepping up and being mad about it and saying this is bad for America, whether it benefits me or not, it's bad for America. He says, didn't happen. Could have been anybody. We did what anybody else would have done. It's all about him. In volume one of this report, it is so striking that no one, at any point, seems to have asked the question, is this the right thing to do? Does this serve the American public? Is this okay? It is all, all of the conversations, and it goes into so much detail about what the conversations were within the Trump team. It was always, what are they going to write in the newspapers about this? And where are we in the polls? And how do we get through the next 24 hours? That's it. There's never a question about what's right. And it drives me crazy. And I just think that's instructive. And I don't mean to get too far afield of your point, Sarah, because I can appreciate the catharsis that a lot of people will hear from hearing you say that on behalf of folks who supported Hillary Clinton. And I don't know that you're wrong. It just, to me, I'm not sure what good it does. To relitigate that point as much as I think there is a volume of future conduct at issue here, present in future conduct, and we're not doing anything about it. It's not
1: necessarily a relitigating. I just think it's an essential part of the discussion, even to the points you just made. It's not just that Donald Trump and his campaign are selfishly motivated and amoral, if not immoral. It's that. They know this was outcome dispositive. That's what I mean. This was this was what all the inaugural crowd conversation was about. This is why he was so loath to have this to to have this investigation to begin with, because he's not dumb. He knows what most people are going to conclude, which is would he have won if they hadn't interfered? You know what I mean? Like, I think it's not just that he was selfish and. You know, the reason they were obsessed with polling is because it was getting close and because of this interference, things that should have destroyed his campaign weren't destroying his campaign. They didn't think they were going to win. Lots of people didn't think they were going to win. And the reason they won is because of this <laughs> interference. And, I, I mean, it, you know, and I guess it's not just about catharsis. I just think so often in America, we we want to you know, it's like sort of what we do as parents. We want to solve the problem instead of affirming what happened and affirming the hurt of what happened. And he won unfairly. And I just feel like that needs to be said. Like that's the conclusion of this report is that a foreign government interfered and most likely changed the outcome of the election. And again, it's my like sort of justice-driven psyche that I'm like, man, I just want somebody, he's not going to say it, I just want somebody to say it, to say like, okay, we can all put two and two together and see what happened here. And it's wrong. It's really wrong. Whether there's any sort of legal conclusion of collusion, just because there wasn't open treason doesn't mean democracy wasn't thwarted. And it was. And that infuriates me. And I feel like if we just focus on how do we move forward I mean, not to be like America's therapist here, but, man, I want my feelings affirmed. Democracy was thwarted. I'm pissed off and I'm still pissed off. And I feel like if I try to bury that before 2020, it's just going to get worse. And I just, you know, it makes me feel good that Robert Mueller was like, no, you're right. (laughs) This is what happened.
0: Well, can we be precise about it though? Because I wanna make sure to say like there is not a conclusion in the no, right. in the report that says this is outcome determinative. That, like right, that right, the report right. did not say that. The report says there was a sweeping coordinated, almost breathtaking campaign by Russia to interfere in this election on behalf of the president. But it does not say, and we conclude that he would not have won but for that. And I think that's important. Now, that doesn't take anything away from your big feelings, which you are entitled to. I just want to make sure we're precise about it.
1: No, no, I know. I get that. I just, but the reason it's breathtaking is because any thinking person can read the scope of this campaign and think, well, things probably would have been different. You know, I just, I don't know. I just, that part, I just feel like we just skip over that because nobody wants to say it because we have to be so careful with our language. Not that we shouldn't be careful with our language. But I don't know. I just, because it's been a little drip, drip, drip of information, because we've been swimming in in these Russian 2016 waters for so long, I do think there's, like, we should all just take a moment and be like, holy crap, look what happened. You know, and I, I'm sad because I think it's an important point to talk about how it's come out slowly. But I also think every time the media says we knew all this already, there's like 10 fewer Americans that are going to read the report. But, I, you know, I just think there's a sort of big picture needed of, yes, we have the details of the Mueller report and they're very important. But also the gift or the importance of this report is we can look at it all at once and say, Oh, my God, look what
0: happened. And
1: especially with volume one, I think that part is just so impactful.
0: And I do think we should look at it all at once. I do think it is worth reading the report in its entirety. I think that when you read blog posts or hear from folks who have focused on sections of it, that's always going to be incomplete because this is purposeful. I don't see any sections of this report that are superfluous. Like one of my main conclusions upon reading this was like, this was really good legal work. This was Mm -hmm. done really well. It is meticulous. It is thoughtful. It is measured and careful. And so in that regard, one of the portions of volume one that I think is really important for our country to focus in on is all of the detail about how we were so easily divided along racial lines. Mm -hmm. I think it had to be heartbreaking to read this report as a person of color because for an adversary to say where is a a major vulnerability in the United States and go right to the Confederacy, right to Black Lives Matter, right to disenfranchisement of communities of color – I just think that is a wake-up call to all of us, that this isn't just a painful internal struggle. It is a national security risk for us at this point.
1: To my point in the first segment of the show, that's not ahistorical. That's happened before with Russia. In the 50s, with the Cold War, reaching out to Americans and other parts of the world and saying, American will never be your champion for freedom and equality, with particularly with regards to race, and exploiting that for their national security priorities. This is not new. This is not new. This is an incredible moral, ethical, security, economic weakness in America. And until we pay attention to it, we're not going to empower the Justice Department or pass legislation or set up a committee or a policy or a whole new bureaucratic agency tasked with protecting our elections without doing any hard work on racial inequality in this country and think we've fixed it. We need to let go of that immediately. Again, because it's not new. This has happened to us before. And it is an exploitable weakness in a country that claims to be the greatest democracy on the planet, as is obvious from the way, exactly what you say, the way they describe them exploiting that in the report. And so I just think, you know, that as as we're forward-facing, as we're looking to the future, to think that we can protect these insecurities without dealing with our past
0: is false. I'm trying to think about the questions that people have asked me about the report. We've kind of been diving right into it. So to step back a little bit, the report lays out lots of different points of connection between people who worked on the Trump campaign and and sort of the immediate periphery of the Trump campaign, people like Roger Stone. Much of the Roger Stone section is heavily redacted because of the ongoing criminal charges pending against Roger Stone. But the report talks about all these points of connection, and they are complex. Sometimes they feel a little bit random. There isn't one good beginning to end story that threads through this whole thing it is someone reached out and tested something the trump campaign took the bait they have the meeting it disappoints the trump campaign because it it was more of a test balloon than we are actually going to get in this together so When you talk about collusion, the report is very careful in saying collusion is not a thing in federal criminal law. That is a word that everyone uses about this, but that is not what we are looking for. The report really doesn't say there was no collusion. It just says collusion is not our line of questioning. Our line of questioning is, was there a crime in the form of conspiracy? And here's what that could mean. But it's not Collusion, And then they come up with a definition for coordination that would lead to a criminal conclusion here. And they decide those acts were never fully completed. There was a lot of talk. There was a lot of appreciation for WikiLeaks and for information coming out about Hillary Clinton that was damaging to her that directly came from stolen emails But it never ripened into enough of a relationship between the Trump campaign and people in Russia actively working together for it to rise to a crime. And so if you're wondering, like, how did we get to no collusion? I think that's the path. And then the attorney general stepped in and said, I'm going to put this in lay terms and tell you everything's fine. And I think that bridge is too far because in a lot of ways, Sarah, I'm curious what you think about this. The report read to me a little bit like the James Comey press conference about Hillary Clinton, where it was a scolding. It was a scathing Mm -hmm. disapproval of what happened and still the decision not to prosecute. I think it
1: is what you often talk about, which is, what do we want? And I'm not really sure we... Told Bob Mueller what we wanted, you know what I mean. Like with particularly with regards to collusion, we didn't we didn't go into this knowing what we were looking for in a way. And I think this is Democrats' fault too, because what we did know what we wanted. We wanted like highly treasonous behavior. We set the bar so high, or we wa- or we believed that the the criminal behavior was at such a level that you know, anything short of Vladimir, you know, a direct text exchange between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump saying this is how we're going to take down the United States would have been disappointing. But I think beyond sort of the partisan outlook, I'm not sure as a country, because there aren't very many moderate voices, unfortunately, left, we kind of said, okay, what what are we looking for? What level is problematic? So that All he was left to do was sort of describe the events and then who's going to be the moral authority that steps up and says, "Okay, well, what we were looking for is this and we found it and this is the result. I mean, we just have all this description of truly unethical, problematic behavior, but because the Justice Department is the body doing the investigation and we're sort of leaning too heavily on this legal standard – we don't have a great next step, but we're going to talk about after volume two. But, I mean, I just think that that's part of the problem. It's like the body doing the the investigating, not that I have a suggestion for a different body, and that we don't have a – we never did have a great sort of outcome goal.
0: I think that's such a good point. At the beginning, you and I talked about a nine eleven style commission would have been, I think, a superior route to this investigation mm-hmm. because – Robert Mueller did the job that was assigned to him, Mm -hmm, but it mm -hmm. is not the job, to your point, that the country wanted him to do. Yeah. And he couldn't do it, and I commend him and the people who worked on this so much, and I am so angry and sorry that the attorney general has disrespected their work in the way that he has, in my opinion. But this wasn't the right body, I think, to tackle this, And, and it gives the talking points to rudy giuliani which we'll talk about more i'm sure that they were we looking for to. crime <laughs> but i'll tell you you know if they here's what i want people to, who haven't read the report to really understand if this had been a witch hunt if the goal here had been at any cost to find criminality they could have done it mm-hmm. they could have done it quite easily There are leads in this first volume that they clearly passed on. There were people who deleted communications. They could have followed up on that and whether there was criminality associated with not preserving those communications. There are multiple avenues to finding crime here, not the least of which would have been sending a subpoena to make the president talk to them. Because let's be honest, who among us believes the president could have done that without perjuring himself? He just he so routinely exaggerates and lies and obfuscates that there's no way he could have set for an interview without committing perjury. And I truly believe that's why they didn't send him the subpoena. I almost feel like this report searches for exoneration and wishes it could find it and, Mm. and didn't and did its best in in light of not being able to find exoneration. On that point let's move to
1: volume 2 which is particularly related to the president's choices, bad choices as we say around my house, and the focus on obstruction of justice. So to set sort of the the baseline, the report looks with regards to obstructive justice and evaluates them, you have three basic elements when you're looking at obstruction of justice. Was there an obstructive act? Was there a nexus to an ongoing, basically means a connection, to an ongoing official proceeding? And was there corrupt intent? So these are the the three questions we're looking at, at a long list of, of choices the president made.
0: And the truth is, the report sets the table for analyzing those elements by saying under existing guidance, the president should not be indicted. And we have to frame everything through the lens of under existing guidance, the president shouldn't be indicted.
1: And do you take that existing guidance to mean the Justice Department believes you cannot indict a sitting president?
0: Yes. Yeah. And we now have a confirmed attorney general who's written an extensive memo applying that guidance to this president. Mm-hmm. And And, you know, this is not Robert Mueller's first rodeo. This man's been around for every significant thing that's happened in our lifetimes in a high-level position. And I do not think he was going to issue a report that went toe-to-toe on the illegal analysis with the attorney general. Yeah. Whether he agrees with it or not, which I have no idea. And, again, that is a real credit to Robert Mueller and his team. You leave this report uncertain of what they would do if they were kings of the world. And I think that's really good. So... I don't know how to do this without walking through each one of these individual instances, which I don't think we want to do, Sarah. But I'll tell you what jumped out at me in this section is how much of what I think does constitute obstruction of justice was carried out by attorneys. Mm. The report describes how counsel for the president would talk to counsel for Mike Flynn and say Mm. things like, We're going to let the president know that Mike Flynn has become hostile to him. You make sure to tell your client that we're going to tell the president that he's become hostile to him. And the report says they said this believing Flynn would not welcome that news. And they can't connect the dots too much because what actually transpired between the president and his counsel is a matter of privilege, right? The attorney-client privilege protects the special counsel from knowing what conversations they had. I can't believe that lawyers conducted themselves the way that this report describes the president's legal team conducting themselves.
1: Well, I think even if there was an absence of attorney-client privilege, you would see exactly what Michael Cohen described in his testimony, which is Donald Trump is never going to say, go tell him this. He's going to say – even sort of completely inaccurately describe the situation to the full knowledge of everyone in the, new, in the room – as an implication, as a type of vague instruction of, well, that's not there's no collusion. So, do you know what I mean? Like, I think that even if that attorney-client privilege was lifted, the people who were taking instructions, the people who were obstructing justice for him, and and we should say that the report also describes aides not doing exactly what he instructed them to do, right? And attorneys, I think it would you would still see the same thing. Like, I think that he understands to a certain extent how to protect himself from the lying and criminality of his own choices by being purposely vague in his direction to his staff aides and attorneys.
0: And I don't think there's another way to interpret that. Mm-hmm. I looked in the obstruction section for a way to interpret it other than he acts like a mob boss. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I couldn't find another way. And I, I really am trying to be very fair Because I get the accusation that, you know, I'm not a real conservative and whatever. I like the liberal show better, but okay. (laughs) I don't think that you can read this believing that honesty is a value upheld in this family or this administration. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can read this in, in any way other than these folks lie so much that they believe their own lies. I walk away from this understanding why there is not a conclusion. That there are indictable offenses on obstruction, although I think that was razor thin close. And but for that department guidance, I don't know that that would have been the conclusion.
1: I mean, if he wasn't president, I don't think it'd be razor close.
0: I think that's right. I think that's right. I think any other human being on the planet would be indicted who did what he did here through his lawyers and his aides and to some extent himself would have been indicted.
1: Important to remember that so many around him were
0: indicted. That's indicative of something. So my question is, how is this OK with anybody? Because, again, we've mm-hmm. talked before about the standard is not only what is a crime, but what is acceptable conduct, what is ethical For the president of the United States and the obstruction section to me is even worse than volume one Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it involves using the power of the presidency as a weapon.
1: And I think what is indicative of that problem is not just what you find in the report, but the way the Trump administration has talked about the report. First of all, they can't decide if they want to tear down the investigation and the team or build up the quote-unquote conclusion of the team, which they purposely misinterpret, which you got to choose one, guys. It can't be a witch hunt and totally invalid, and we should all take the conclusion at what it is. Like, it's blessings. Those don't work together. But this idea that, well, he couldn't have obstructed justice because there's no underlying crime is so ridiculous because of that sort of, I think, mob boss analogy, which is totally accurate. No, it's not that there was no criminality, There was no criminal like that. No, there was no treason, but there was so much criminality with regards to the hush payments, his financial records, his which I think that even if it wouldn't be criminality, the political impact of some of the the communications with the Russian government. There's just so much there. There's so much there there that, of course, there would be intent to corrupt intent to try to keep that. From the public to keep that from the press to keep that from investigators who are going to indict his attorney going to indict his national security advisor going to indict his campaign manager like all these things the idea that oh well because there was no legal criminality related to collusion he couldn't have obstructed justice it's just so bizarre to me.
0: Let's talk about what happens from here then. There is a conference call happening. We're recording on Monday. There's a conference call happening today that Nancy Pelosi is conducting. And I'll be honest with you that I would maybe cut off some of my toes to be able to listen in on that. <laughs> Where the party's going to decide what its response is going to be. Rudy Giuliani made the rounds on the Sunday shows. Just, I, I, I'm sorry. I I have lost all respect for Rudy Giuliani. I cannot Ugh. believe that he is saying that taking opposition research that was stolen from servers by foreign adversaries is ethically the same as receiving information from whistleblowers. I mean, that is what he said this weekend, that the Pentagon papers are the same as the WikiLeaks dumps on the DNC. And I, I hope that the majority of the American public does not agree with that. So the Trump folks are making their rounds. As you described, Sarah, the Democrats are thinking about what to do next, What do you think should happen from here?
1: I was very persuaded by Elizabeth Warren's call for impeachment.
0: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement
1: podcast 15.
0: There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered mineral filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered showerhead. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water
1: I understand the argument that it is a political impossibility because of the current makeup of the Senate and the Mitt Romney out there all by himself. It's just the issues that there are moral problems. But I think it's true that if if this is okay, if this is not impeachable, how far does the next president have to go to get to impeachable? I think it's difficult because impeachment has always been a political process. But I don't think our founding father set it up as purely a political process. I think it was supposed to be a guardrail for immoral and unethical behavior, which the Mueller report absolutely describes. I think one of the the best analysis I've read about this sort of political versus moral equation is from – Judd Lagoon, he writes the weekly email we've talked about before on the podcast called Popular Information, which I highly recommend. And he's kind of talking about this analysis that everybody's doing. And I love what he says, which is, The theory is that if the House forgoes impeachment, the issue will fade to the background and Democrats will be able to focus on health care and other issues where they have decisive advantage over Republicans. But regardless of what the Democrats do, Trump and his allies plan on keeping the Mueller investigation in the spotlight. Attorney General Bill Barr has already revealed that he is undertaking an inquiry into how the investigation began, something that Trump has repeatedly demanded. Senate Republicans are likely to hold hearings on similar issues. So I think that's so true. The idea that oh, well, the Mueller report's over. We should just move on. The idea that Republicans are going to move on, that the Trump administration is going to want to move on, I think is false. I don't think they're going to want to move on. I think they're going to continue to use the quote unquote witch hunt ankle to rile up their base. So making any any just purely political calculation on the idea that Democrats should move on because the country is ready to move on, the Republicans are going to move on is false. And Talking about what kind of country we want, what, what does this mean for the future, you know, that's, an, that's a political calculation, too. That's a pragmatic calculation, too. What do, we want, what do we want our country to look like? What do we want the next election to look like? What do we want the next pres, How do we want the next president to behave with regards to special investigations in the Justice Department? And so, I mean, for that reason, I think there has to be consequences. And I'm not sure if electoral consequences will be enough.
0: I've been thinking a lot about what should happen next, and I have a partial list, but it's just I'm still marinating on it. <laughs> so one of my friends texted and asked what I think, and I I sent her my partial list, and so I'll share it with you. I think that the attorney general should be censured for his conduct. I think that Congress, the entire Congress, should get the unredacted version of this report. Which means we'll all get the unredacted version of this report. <laughs> which is probably okay. Okay. <sighs> Especially because one of the categories for redactions was avoiding harm to peripheral third parties. And that standard seems to have been very liberally interpreted because there are Mm -hmm. lots of really peripheral third parties who are identified by name in really precise ways. And then seemingly kind of random redactions otherwise. So I think the unredacted version needs to be out there. One of the appendices to the report is a list of all of the matters that were referred during the Mueller investigation to other DOJ prosecutors. So Mueller didn't follow up on every crime he uncovered in the course of this investigation. He sent Mm -hmm. lots of that work out elsewhere. The most famous example of that is Michael Cohen's case that's in the Southern District of New York. That list is redacted and lengthy. And I think the American public needs to see that referral list. I think that the investigation into how security clearances have been granted needs to be prioritized above all of the other investigations that Democrats are conducting. Because my opinion is that volume one of this report describes what could be ongoing intelligence issues, national security risks compromised Mm -hmm. individuals. And knowing that security clearances have been very loosely granted in this administration, to me, I think that if those dots connect, they need to be connected and quickly and something needs to be done about it. I think Congress needs to restore all funding for election meddling prevention. The Trump administration has stopped Some of the work that had been initiated by the Obama administration on safeguarding our elections. And I think Congress needs to step in and make sure that we're doing everything we can. I think at a minimum, there needs to be some kind of bipartisan statement on the deception that's been perpetrated on the public by the administration, because it is very clear from this report that they have known all along on very credible information Mm -hmm. that Russia interfered in this election and have told us that they didn't. I would like to see and I know this isn't going to happen, but short of impeachment, I would like to see Republican senators enough to convict him in an impeachment trial, get together and cut a deal with the president that he not run for reelection. And then I don't know. I think I mean, there are some other ideas that I have, but I have tried to think slowly about this whole situation, read slowly, think slowly Be careful, because I do think this is something that I mean, our kids are going to study this in school, right? This is a very big historical moment that we're living in. And I think it's hard to have enough perspective a few days after reading this thing to know exactly what it ought to mean. But that's my that's my start at a list.
1: We will continue to think slowly about the Mueller report because of the historical significance of the report. I don't think this should be treated as a news story that's over. I think he'll come and testify before Congress and so that we will continue to hear more and continue to think about this, especially if the unredacted version goes before Congress. And we invite all of you to join us in that conversation.
0: What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah?
1: I did a lot of church, like like so much church over the weekend. So I joined the church choir. And the church choir sings at almost all of the Holy Week services. Holy Week stretching from Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter. Then you have Monday through Easter Sunday, in particular, Monday Thursday, which is the Last Supper, Good Friday, the Crucifixion, Easter Vigil on Saturday night, and then Easter Sunday. And I had choir practice on Wednesday night. So (laughs) I was at church a lot. And... It's the first time I've ever attended all of the Holy Week services. I was also simultaneously doing Erin Moon's Lent devotional, oh Heavy Lightness. And so I was just thinking a lot about Holy Week. And it was very intense. And it lended a lot of emotional complexities and layers to sort of the Easter celebration that I haven't thought about or experienced in a really long time. I've gotten really good at embracing this sort of entire liturgical journey of the holiday season, the Christmas season, but less so Easter. And so I really actually enjoyed this process and going every week and thinking about the resurrection, especially as I was simultaneously reading and and listening to Richard Rohr's interpretation through his new book, The Universal Christ, about this whole Holy Week and resurrection and it's getting real Jesusy up in here, but it's Easter, so that was it was I had a very Jesusy week, and I, I really enjoyed it. I love the liturgical calendar. I love there were a lot of services um, that I'd never you know we just there's lots of reading and responsive reading, and I'd never heard all these prayers and these collects before, and I just really enjoyed it. It was sort of a a slow process in another way that I was working through, and it was it was a really nice. Week and a nice set of evenings, especially after our very disruptive couple weeks of travel, it's very grounding.
0: I loved reading about Passover celebrations on Twitter. In addition to all of the Easter posts, I think this is a beautiful time of year for a lot of faith communities. So that's awesome. That's a lot of church that you that you did, but that's awesome. Lots of
1: singing. We had horns though. We had an oboe with us singing or playing with us on Monday Thursday, and then we had a, a big horn section on Easter Sunday. It was the best.
0: Well, shout out to all of the faith community leaders in our audience mm-hmm. who are probably exhausted right now. So hope you're all getting a massage or something and enjoying your lives. I went to see Nick Offerman with Chad. Have fun. So our tradition for Christmas, as lots of you know, is that we get tickets to things that are happening in the future. And so one of our fun things coming up was Nick Offerman. We went to see him. <sighs> Uh-oh. I love Nick Offerman. I love his voice. I love Ron Swanson. This was kind of disappointing. (gasps) Oh, no. It was. And I hate to say that, but it was kind of disappointing. Like, no, Chad and I did not feel good. Everybody in our house has been sick and we're just slogging through it. So we both, like, agree that some of it is that we didn't feel good. Our standard for Make Us Giggle was probably pretty high. And it was okay. But I don't know. I don't know what I expected, but he did a lot of songs which felt kind of Adam Sandler from the 90s to me. And there was a lot of commentary that was just kind of complaining about Trump and society. And I don't—it just—it wasn't super funny. And I thought that was too bad. Well, with Love, when you said you was you were going to see him, I mean, I like Nick Offerman too, but
1: I was like, to do what? He's not a stand-up comic. He never has been, right? And I guess
0: I was just hoping that he could do that. And— he didn't. Now, let me end on a positive and say I love hearing him talk about his wife. I love, love, love that relationship. It is so encouraging to me to hear two famous people be in, as in love with each other as those, those two are. So that part was a delight. Well, you should have come with me to see Ali
1: Wong because that sister is a stand-up comic and she's at the top of her game. And it was so good just to reiterate that point from previous
0: episodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... Thank you all for joining us, and again for your patience and kind of tolerating that we wanted to read this report before talking about it. Which I hope served you; it certainly served our thinking about it. We will be back here with you on Friday, and on the Nuance Life on Wednesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.